Tonight's scripture is from the first book of Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 through 24. Later, the following events took place. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard so that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral inheritance. Ahab went home resentful and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you my ancestral inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. His wife Jezebel came to him and said, Why are you so depressed that you will not eat? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. His wife Jezebel said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Get up, eat some food, be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the assembly. Seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Just as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the assembly. The two scoundrels came in and sat opposite him. And the scoundrels brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Go, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab Ahab set out to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He is now in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, I will bring disaster on you. I will consume you and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. 
Also concerning Jezebel, the Lord said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the bounds of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the air shall eat. The word of the Lord. The dogs shall eat Jezebel. You probably don't want to linger on that image too long. But she was a very bad person, according to the book of Kings. And Ahab, her husband, was bad too, so pouty, laying in bed, refusing to eat because his neighbor wouldn't give him his vegetable garden. So Jezebel cheers him up by arranging to have the neighbor falsely accused and stoned to death. All in all, it is a pretty ugly story. It could be that Elijah the prophet is a really good person, but when he appears in this story, he's just wiped the blood off his hands from the 450 prophets of Baal he murdered in a rampage two chapters earlier. He pronounces this terrible judgment on Ahab and Jezebel, talks about death by dogs and death by bird eating, blood being licked up by animals. He doesn't seem very nice here. It's kind of hard to see why this is a popular children's Bible story. Until... You meet the good little girl, Stephanie, not in the Bible, but prominently figured in this book. Steph cleans and sews for the queen. When Jezebel sang, I'm so lovely and rich, Stephanie thought she looked more like a witch. With her eyelids painted purple and green and her cheeks the reddest you've ever seen. With the addition of Stephanie, Jezebel becomes the evil stepmother in Cinderella. She becomes the wicked queen from Snow White. As Stephanie's scouring the floor, the wicked queen is looking at herself in a mirror. She's derided in the children's book because she wears too much makeup. And she bosses her husband around evil. (laughs) But most of all, she's bad because she worships the gods of the rivers and sky. When Stephanie asks, what can these gods do? What's wrong with our God who is real and true? Jezebel says, I want gods I can see, like Baal, who is God of the plant and the tree. Stone me for saying so but that doesn't seem that evil to me. Human nature is a perpetual idol factory. Whether or not we are into God or gods or anything on the spiritual plane, we give our lives to ideologies, economic systems, technology, 
that we think will make us secure. We are incessant idolaters. It's more sad than wicked, I think. Jezebel is an idolater. Well, so is everyone else. And to be honest, her gods of the plant and the tree seem less destructive than our gods of capitalism, money, and technology. She does arrange for a murder, but Elijah murders 450 prophets with his own bare hands. No one seems very innocent in this story, except Stephanie. In the text, there's not much room to sympathize with Jezebel. Sympathizers will be eaten by dogs or eaten by birds. Maybe there's a time and place for that sort of thing, torturing collaborators, but call me crazy? I really don't think so. The authors of this particular portion of scripture had a very particular agenda that they pursue with a vengeance. A lot of the Bible is all jagged, there are cracks. You can see the hands of various editors, different voices. Things are pasted together with obvious seams, as if it was important to preserve all these voices, preserve some ambiguity. Even characters like Abraham and Sarah and Moses are complex, sometimes morally ambiguous, fully human beings. I love that about scripture. It lays itself open to questions, to a multiplicity of interpretations. In this particular part of the Bible, though, it is not really like that. The pieces and the layers have all been subsumed, smoothed under a single point of view. So black and white that it does read like a fairy tale. The evil queen versus the good guys. The wicked stepmother versus Stephanie. The god of the Canaanites versus the gods of Israel. It's really very formulaic. I mean, like the authors actually use formulas over and over. This king did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. This king didn't do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. That line is repeated like 80 million times in the book of Kings. And what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord meant one single thing. Did the king allow the people to burn incense to their idols or not? From a certain point of view, this might come across as a little bit fascist. I mean, I keep imagining the people of Israel, like all these rural sheep farmers and goat herders and moms with their babies who live all over the countryside. They're preliterate. They haven't gone to school. They work their garden. They tend their sheep. And sometimes they pray to the rain god for rain. And maybe they even have a little shrine in their backyard where they practice the sort of piety that they've always practiced. They burn incense to the idols. It's a sort of religion that almost all people everywhere had practiced. A religion that was just sort of comfortable with various gods, mixed gods. But the kings and judges are judged bad or good by whether or not they sent purity police out into the countryside, into these people's backyards, to make sure that they weren't burning incense. 
Whether or not they sent the purifiers into these people's backyards to smash up their little shrines, to enforce the proper religion. I mean, at this point in history, there really was no such thing as monotheism. But the people who wrote Kings mean to revise the history to show that this is precisely why everything bad that happened to Israel ever happened. It was because these people were worshiping other gods. But of course they did. Monotheism wasn't prevalent. And there are traces of these other gods all over the Bible, even in the varied names the Bible uses to speak of God. Elohim has a plural ending, like more than one. El Shaddai means the double-breasted one, like very female. Gender and number were relatively unimportant in the inception of the faith of Israel. There wasn't one male God above all others. Yahweh had a female consort known as the Queen of Heaven, as I may have mentioned before. She was part of what the people of Israel had come to worship. And you can see traces of her all over the text. I think that we might have liked her had we had a chance to know her. The female face of God, the mother, also sometimes known as Asherah or the face of Baal. And if archaeological evidence shows anything true about this time, is that she was just a normal part of people's faith. Archaeologists have found evidence of have found no evidence of Solomon's temple. They found no evidence for most of the events recorded in the Book of Kings. But they have found tons of these little Asherah figurines buried in the dirt amidst the rubble of kitchens and bedrooms and playgrounds and shrines all over what was Israel. The agenda of the people who wrote the Book of Kings was in great part to rid the faith of all traces of this female mother goddess. They were trying to solidify monotheism by getting rid of the queen. I'm sure their intentions were good or maybe mixed like almost everything. But I just wonder if there could have been another way. There are definitely still images, female images of God in the Bible. But to be honest, they're a little bit few and far between. These stories didn't stop humanity from making idols, my God, no. But they did pretty effectively get rid of the female face of God. These guys knew how to do their job well. They tell a story about a most evil queen, the epitome of evil, a powerful woman, not the consort, but the enemy of God who bosses her husband around. And she's the cause of all destruction and failure. Everything bad that happened to Israel happened because of her, Jezebel the evil goddess queen. The story they told was amazingly effective. I mean, 3,000 years later, everybody still knows what Jezebel means. Ahab, her husband, may have been bad, but no one really remembers him. 
Elijah murdered a whole lot of people, but he's mostly remembered as good. The bad kings in general in Israel, I bet anyone, no one could name one of them. But Jezebel, she's like an icon of evil. There's an entry in the dictionary for Jezebel. It means a scheming, wicked woman. As an icon of badness, she shows up in literature, comic books, video games, music, and the computer game, Vampire, the Masquerade. She's a seductive vampirist that deliberately spreads a dangerous disease. Wherever she appears, she is always bad. Jezebel was the name of a series of experiments at Los Alamos that helped create the atomic bomb, for God's sake. Sometimes her badness is made sexual. There's a proliferation of lingerie lines that bear her name, like the Jezebel Wild Thing bra. Animal prints trimmed with lace. There's a whole section in the Jim Crow Museum of racist memorabilia devoted to Jezebel images. Ashtrays, postcards, fishing lures, drinking glasses, twizzle sticks with naked black women posed as temptress. One popular item of Jezebel memorabilia is a metal nutcracker, cracker, circa 1930s. It's a topless woman. The nut is placed under her skirt and crushed. This seems to me like it might unfortunately be an accurate summary of some sort of driving fear that has unfortunately shaped not only the biblical witness, but most of history. Beware the Jezebel, the female nut crusher. Whatever the biblical witness may, writers may have attended, this is not an outcome that's been very helpful to women, to say the least. The story in the Bible doesn't actually ever say anything about Jezebel's sexual behavior. She actually seems to be a very loyal wife. It's just that Jehu the good king who kills her calls her a whore right before he tramples her with his horses, spraying her blood all over. And this label seems to have taken. The synonyms for Jezebel in the dictionary are slut, tramp, trollop, wench, whore. Her badness in the Bible isn't related to anything sexual, but it's how her badness has been shaped. The writers in the Bible are utterly hostile to Jezebel. She becomes an opportunity to teach a moral lesson about the evil outcomes of idolatry. Jezebel becomes dog food. I guess that's one way, way to deal with a powerful woman. Jehu is anointed king instead of Jezebel's husband by the prophet of God with these words of the Lord, so that I might avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servant and priests, and the dogs will eat Jezebel. What horrible words for an anointing. Vengeance? Dogs eating people? So after being anointing, Jehu jumps in his chariots to head to Jezreel, where Jezebel's sons and grandsons are. And they see him coming, and they ride out to greet him. 
So you come in peace, Jehu? And he answers, what peace can there be as long as a whore in which your mother is alive? And he assassinates both of them. And then Jehu goes to get Jezebel. She calls through the window, is it peace? And Jehu yells at some eunuchs who are with Jezebel, throw her down. And so they throw her out the window, and the text says some of her blood spattered on the walls and on the horses. And after trampling Jezebel with the horses, the dogs devour her body. Except the text says for her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. And the bloodbath has only begun. Jehu has 70 sons of Ahab beheaded. He slays 42 visiting relatives. Then Jehu has all the prophets, priests, and worshipers of Asherah assemble at her temple, ostensibly to honor her. And then he has everyone who gathered in the temple slain. He has the temple demolished, making it a latrine to this day, says the text. The whole thing is really one of the most chillingly brutal scenes in the Bible. The female queen with the power in the castle, who worships the female deity with power in the temple, becomes dog food and dung, and the female deity's temple becomes a latrine. Personally, I think it's a little bit much. In the children's book, Stephanie gathers with other good people after Jezebel's demise, smiling on top of the demolished temple. There's no mention of slains and beheadings. So the people in little Stephanie were free from Baal, the god of the tree, were free to worship the Lord above, the god of goodness and kindness and love. I mean... More people die in the writing of the Deuteronomist, the purifiers, than practically any other place in the Bible. Slaughter all the inhabitants of Canaan, their God says, everything that breathes. They mean to wipe out idolatry. And they write the bloodiest history in service to their concept of God. That is the worst kind of idolatry. The people who wrote these stories may have wanted what they believed was best for the people. And yet, if they were seeking goodness and kindness and love, their bloody story becomes parody. The good people end up looking terrible. Maybe stories about good people versus bad people are never true. It is never that simple. The search for purity ends up leading to violence. Maybe that's a really important part of what these texts end up revealing, whether that was their original intent or not. Trying to clean things up, trying to tidy up the faith, draw lines, maybe that's not the best thing to do. I like that the Bible keeps on going. The story keeps unfolding. A lot of time passes, a lot of things happen, and eventually, so the story goes, God becomes incarnate in the world as a human being. Crazy. Talk about going in a different direction than one that seeks purity. God comes into the world as a placental mammal. 
becomes incarnate in the world through, this is so crazy and beautiful to me, I can hardly believe it, comes incarnate in the world through the womb of the mother. The story of God incarnate begins with the beloved mother. I am not making this up. The mother becomes the temple out of which God emerges clothed in flesh. Seems like the writers of Kings, like the purists, would be going crazy. They did everything they could to get the mother out of the temple, to rid the faith of her presence, and here she is. This seems like some kind of grace to me. The search for purity leads to violence. There's an energy that comes from naming some people bad. So we keep drawing lines and forming sides. And God keeps coming in the world in the most surprising but graciously gentle sort of ways, condemning no one to avenge nothing, but to somehow take everything up in love, giving birth to grace upon grace upon grace. 